turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn the f*** TMM is back again. I'm super excited about the guest today. He's a tech entrepreneur, the author of The Creative Curve, the owner of the cutest corgi ever, <laughs> and just an overall awesome guy. I'm pleased to welcome my friend, Alan Gannon. Thanks for having up? me, man. I'm excited. For, the, for people who are listening, by the way, like Daniel has a very cool like fake Zoom background. And like my background is like a very cheesy exercise ball. And so he's currently winning. Like he's, he's the winner so far. I would lose the battle. The reason why I have a cool Zoom background is I got hate at work because my background behind me is just a white wall. So mm, people kept yeah, saying to me, like, get paintings. And I'm like, nope. So I got a, <laughs> a fake Zoom background instead. We love some technology. Who knew? Yep. yep. Well, I want to get this started because you have an interesting journey and I want to get the synopsis of that and then get into the conversation of creativity, which you're the expert in. So I want to start there. Where did the journey start for Alan? Yeah, so I've always been sort of interested in marketing in like various forms. So, you know, as a kid, I started a, a music magazine that was like sort of a zine for like pop punk and we sold ads and I had to do a lot of marketing, get people to pay attention to it. And then in college, I started a company that did Facebook apps back when Facebook apps were a thing. And we built Facebook apps for higher ed marketing. Then I worked as CMO of a startup for a year. And then I started my company TrackMaven, which is a marketing analytics company. So I've always been inter- interested in digital marketing and especially the ways in which you could apply sort of like data and rigor to it. That's taking me on sort of this journey where like, as I've, you know, over the years, I've sort of gotten more and more interested in this idea of a lot of the things that we think of as sort of organic or magical, whether that's, you know, amazing marketing campaign or an amazing feat of creativity, there's actually a lot of systems and process behind it. And if you can understand those systems and if you can understand those processes, you can become dramatically more effective. And that's where my book comes from. And that's where a lot of my focus today comes from, this idea of can you sort of reverse engineer things that seem impossible to fully understand? For the topic of creativity, so let's like, how did you come up with that topic to start writing on? Yeah, so I wrote this book called The Creative Curve. The subtitle is How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. And it's basically... It's sort of two books in one. The first half of the book is looking at the mythologies around creativity and debunking them because there's a lot of made up myths on how creativity works. And then the second half of the book is I interviewed 25 living creative greats. These are like Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, and looking at what was their creative process and what patterns can we learn from that. And I found there's these four patterns are called the four laws of things they all did to enhance their creativity. And so you know, that topic really came out of working with marketers where I would spend time, you know, our clients are some of the world's biggest brands like MBA, GE, Honda, Saks Fifth Avenue, MailChimp. But then 
I would talk to marketers at these big companies that were so successful at marketing and they would say things like, I'm not that creative. Like that's not me. And that was a very frustrating thing to hear. And I'm like a frustratable guy from New Jersey. And so at a certain point I was just like, well, that's BS. Like, that's not true. Like you are creative and you can be even more creative if you want to be. And I started giving talks about the topic and the talk eventually snowballed through a series of fortunate events into a book. So I want to go into those four laws. Like what are the four laws you found out that make someone creative? Yeah. So there was these four things and for these four things, what I did is in these 25 interviews, I was looking for things that everyone did. So all 25, so hundred percent compliance and also things that were explainable by science. So things that actually make sort of like academic sense. And I found these four things. And so I'll, just, I'll give you like the, the sort of the headline for each one. So the first one is the law of consumption. So what you find is that the most successful creatives are also massive consumers of their niche. And we can talk more about why, but it turns out that's a hugely important part and probably the most underappreciated part of the creative process. The second thing is imitation. So we often think about creativity as being about radical newness. In reality, creativity is about blending the old and the new. And so the way to do that is actually to imitate the great work that has come before you. So what is the structure of a great pop song? What is the story arc of a great novel? What does a great ad campaign sort of look like? And then your job as a creative is not to reinvent the entire genre of movie telling. It's rather to add your own novel twist to it. The third law is that of creative communities. So we have this myth of creatives as these solo operators, these sort of lone wolf geniuses. But the reality is all successful creatives build a community around them that helps support them and fill in their weaknesses. And the fourth law is iteration. So there's a sort of mythology of creativity that, you know, you think of like a great novelist you know, goes into the woods and he rents a cabin and he, you know, comes out once he's written his great new American novel and, you know, there's no editing, there's none of that. That's garbage. Like literally all creatives that are successful are highly iterative. They incorporate feedback, whether that's quantitative feedback or more qualitative feedback, and they work on getting their product into that right zone for the audience, they don't just assume that they get it right themselves. And that's a really fundamental, important part. So those four laws, we can, I, I can talk about each of them for like seven hours, but those really fundamentally are the things that all successful creatives do. And luckily they're things that all of us can also do. I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea of consumption because I feel like at the root of most of those laws is consuming something, right? So one of them is consuming content, the other one's consuming conversations, the other one's consuming things from the past that you're just going. So like, I wanna dive into this like consumption idea and why consuming is so important to be creative. Yeah, so the thing with consumption that's so interesting is I think people think of it as a sort of wasteful activity, right? Like, okay, like, you know, there's this meme you might have seen that's like, you know, 90% of people consume, 9% engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle. And like, that's stupid because in reality, what you find is like the best creative spend usually about three to five hours per day consuming highly specific information in their niche. So this is not like going on Twitter, right? This is not learning a little bit about a lot of things. 
but rather it's going very, very deep. So it's learning a lot about a little. And the reason why this is so important is that our brain is actually basically a creativity machine. Like our right hemisphere is incredibly good at putting concepts and ideas together in interesting novel ways, but it can only connect the dots that it has, right? So if you want to connect the dots, you literally have to give yourself those dots. And so what you find is that the most successful creatives, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but the most successful creatives experience a lot of these aha moments or these epiphanies. And that seems really magical until you realize that your right hemisphere is constantly trying to do that. And the two ingredients it needs in order to successfully come up with new ideas One is sort of raw material, which you can gather through consumption, and the other is silence. And so silence is actually a huge part of the creative process, and you see this with great creatives. They all have some meditative thing they do, not necessarily meditation, like a lot of, like, I hate meditation, I think it's dumb. Um, I wish I shouldn't have said that. That's, That's a strong opinion. People will get mad. Meditation isn't dumb for everyone. It's dumb for me. But they have some meditative process, and you know, for Steve Jobs, it was long walks by himself. Same with Mark Zuckerberg. Bill Gates spends a week a year by himself. A lot of poets would famously spend time in nature. But the idea of quiet is really important because how our right hemisphere processes information is it's right below our level of consciousness. And only once it comes up with an idea, does it sort of pop into consciousness. And so as a result, you have to sort of give yourself the experience of actually being able to hear what your right hemisphere has been working on. And if you're constantly living in the world that my friend Nirial talks about, which is, you know, sort of 2020 is pings, dings, and rings, you don't actually have the silence and the experience to actually sort of hear, so to speak, what your right hemisphere has been working on. That's super interesting. So one thing I also want to touch on is like some of these moments happen crazily like shower moments that you you say in your book and these aha moments like how when should someone should someone go in and write that down right when that happens and how fast does that like get out of your consciousness because yeah uh, yeah so I, I think it all just depends on i think you have to build creative habits that work for you and are sustainable so for me it's long walks without music sometimes with my dog and I, you know, have an app on my phone that's essentially allows me to quickly write notes that email myself. And I like when I get an idea, I just open up a it's called Captio. I open up Captio and I write down the note and emails it to myself. And then I later sort through my email and like tag stuff. I don't really come up with ideas in the shower. I don't really come up with ideas before bed, but I do come up with ideas in walks. And so I think I think it's whatever is sustainable for you. So I know people who like swear by like all their ideas only come in the shower. And so, you know, they get one of those like waterproof marker boards that you can put in the shower and actually like write your ideas. And so, yeah, I think generally you need to have some way of recording the idea just because as humans, we naturally forget, but I don't think it has to be anything super ornate, right? I know a lot of people who have you know, notepads right by their bedside for this reason, but just some way of recording it in case you forget. Yeah, because Matthew Kobach, who we had in a podcast earlier, says like, and he writes some crazy stuff on Twitter that is just like pretty unique. But obviously, it's what you've been saying from a lot of consumption of like philosophy and like psychology, and he just brings that into the world. But he says like, you have like 
these moments and he has to write them all down, but those moments don't come all the time. Like they come in like these like spurts. And if he doesn't write those moments down, like you might not have a good idea for another like two weeks. Totally. So that's an important thing too, that you should bring up is this idea of inputs versus outputs where I think, you know, ideas are an output and a lot of people wrongly when it comes to creativity, try and force themselves to have more outputs. They, they do activities like brainstorming or, you know, they'll sit in front of a computer, you know, sort of telling themselves they need to write a thousand words a day. And, you know, my experience has been that's mostly, you know, silly and that in reality you want to focus on a ritualistic and habitual experience around inputs. So that's research, that's consuming, that's inspiration. And that if you do that and you give yourself opportunities and time for silence, you will naturally have plenty of ideas and they will come when they come. And if you try and force it, you'll just end up, you know, burnt out and sad. <laughs> yeah. And one of the interesting concepts you talk in your book is like, you ask the question, can anybody creative? And what is like that, like that point where someone can't be creative anymore versus like the point that someone is always cre- can be creative? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that creativity is a learnable, nurturable skill. And so there's a lot of research that shows that creative potential is pretty uniformly spread. In fact, once you have a pretty average IQ, basically there's no correlation between IQ and creative potential. And so the question then is, how do you go from potential to achievement? And that's where I think a lot of people get tripped up. And what you see is that you know, certain experiences tend to allow people to unlock that potential. So one is obviously access to teachers who are world-class. Uh, another is access to potential collaborators or people who will um, sort of mentor you, but not in the way we traditionally think of. The, I think of mentorship as sort of two things. One is the idea of someone who teaches you things. The other is the idea of someone who lends you their reputation. So with startups, this is like, a board of advisors with music. It's someone who makes you an opening act on their tour. Like that's a different form of mentorship. And so anyway, when you talk about creativity, my argument is that everyone can be creative, but there's obviously limited access to some of these resources that are sort of necessary to unlock creative potential. Now, I think as once you know what they are, I think you can seek them out and you can fill those gaps in a way that you can't really. But you know, I think anyone with enough time and enough willingness to work can make incredible strides in any creative craft. That's super interesting. I think the access part is a, a huge part of it. But I think what's super cool about like these this day and age is like access has become more and more open. Um, like with the internet, that like we have a place to consume information at a higher scale than we did. And I think what's interesting about the internet is I think you're exactly right that the consumption and learning, there's a whole thing there, but I think it also gives people this false sense of, they feel like, oh, like maybe I don't have to move to LA if I want to work in screenwriting because I can like Skype with people, right? Obviously during COVID, this is sort of something which we have to do. But I think in general, while skills can be learned online, I think a lot of this sort of reputational aspects of creativity, you have to do in person. So like if, for example, like I have a friend who's a pop songwriter and like he is mentored by one of the world's biggest pop songwriters. 
and, you know, they met sort of randomly in LA once, like the, the sort of happenstance. And so sociologists call this clustering. It's this idea that creative industries tend to cluster in certain cities. And the reason why is that since creativity is such a social phenomenon, in order to truly break out, you need to have a pretty wide network. And those in-person experiences can't be replaced by purely online experiences. I'm actually personally pretty bearish on like long-term, the world being highly remote. I think once COVID's over, like you'll see that, especially in creative industries, there's a stampede back to in-person events, in-person work in an office, and just generally, I think in-person activity in creative fields is going to be very important. I think that's super true. I think like some of the biggest learning I had, and I think more is surrounding myself and this is what I give advice to people when they go into like marketing is like find a boss that you can just like learn from. Like there's nothing like having that, that person to look up to and actually learn from like on a day-to-day basis and 100%. watch what they do. Like you can replicate that being from like being on zoom. Like you're not watching them, like how they there's interact a, with people and stuff. like. There's that. also this, this other dimension too, which is really interesting, which is I talk about this study in the book, that looked at Nobel laureates. And they, they did this study where they looked at people who won the Nobel Prize in science, and they went back to see what was the trajectory of their careers. And one thing they found, which is interesting, but not interesting the way you'd expect, is that Nobel laureates in their 20s published twice as many papers. Now, you go, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? The people who ended up winning the Nobel Prize were harder working, they were smarter. So yeah, they published more. That's not what actually happened. What happened was that those people were more likely in their 20s to work for a senior researcher who is willing to put them as a co-author on the paper. And that's like a really important thing to understand because that idea of sharing credit meant that when they were in their 30s, they had this huge advantage in their academic career. You know, they had double the amount of citations. And that's an advantage that's very hard for their other sort of, you know, competitors in the sort of academic world to ever catch up on. And so it's this idea that I think when we think about what makes a good boss, what makes a good mentor, I think it's really, and sometimes this can actually come from two different people. Often it comes in one. One is this idea of a master teacher, someone who teaches you sort of like the highest level of your craft. And the other I call prominent promoter, which is someone who has reputation and is willing to lend you their reputation to help your career. And that that's where a lot of the magic happens. I have an interesting point that I want to see how you do this is how do you filter out like good versus bad, like content of good versus bad mentors and like that BS filter that yeah. happens? Well, with content for me, it's really about primary sources. So like I try and avoid other people's synthesis. Like I'm really interested in like reading an academic journal versus reading like a Psychology Today article about the academic journal. Like I find that synthesis tends to be really destructive because other people's biases are, are sort of laden with it and it's really hard to distinguish signal versus noise. When it comes to things like people and interacting with people, I'd say I tend to be pretty referral and gut driven. So like I think most of my friends started as friends of friends and there's inherently, if you have good friends, it sort of self-perpetuates. And the other thing is like, at least for me, I've always been very comfortable, you know, sort of opting out and, you know, not 
interacting with someone who I think is a bad influence or sort of not leaning into certain relationships. And so as a result, I feel like I've surrounded myself with very good people. And that becomes over time self-perpetuating because if your friends and mentors and people you work with are sort of fundamentally good people, they also will work with fundamentally good people. And the people you'll be introduced to are fundamentally good people. So I think for a lot of us, it's just remembering this is life. It's pretty long-term. And so sort of having a view of like, it's better to maybe move a little slower than compromise on your sort of standards of who you affiliate with. I think you make an interesting point about the primary source, because I think it's like that telephone game you played as a kid, right? Like after a while, like that, that the original idea gets blurred and blurred and blurred as someone is interpreting it. So I think that's an interesting point to bring up that like, we're natural mimickers as like people like we mimic people around us. And as as much as we don't want to realize we do it, like there's so many like ideas we come, like you say, like just from mimicking, but it's also like if you're mimicking people who have been mimicking and mimicking, it goes down the line. Like you got to get back to like someone who originated those thoughts. A hundred percent. And it's hard. Cause I, I know even in like academic journals, it's like, you know, you'll read people will cite findings from past studies and they'll, even in there, they'll butcher it or they'll add a slant to it that's not quite supported by the actual paper. And so I think what you find is that I think generally we sort of like underestimate our own ability to come up with our own conclusions. And I think we tend to sort of over rely on other people's synthesis work in a lot of different ways. And so I find a lot of very successful people are very good at not doing that. And I think it's a skill that's pretty easy to achieve. You just have to be conscious of what you're consuming. Yeah. And there's a point that I want to bring up about like the creativity part of it is like, do you think there's like also like a fear aspect in creativity? Because like, like there's a line in Alchemy by Rory Sutherland that he says like, nobody got fired from being logic, right? So logical people like, they have things to support it, but they're not being imaginative thinking outside the box because they think that they're going to get fired because they're going to come up with this outlandish idea, even if it could be a good, great idea. Great point. I mean, I talk a lot about this idea of psychological safety being key to creativity because so much of creativity is about this idea that like, it's, you're not going to bat a hundred. In fact, you're not really trying to bat a hundred. You're sort of investing in ideas and you're trying to be pretty good at picking which ideas to invest in. But if you sort of qualify each idea down to the point where it's a hundred percent chance of success, you're probably not doing enough. And as a result, since failure, then it's cliche to say, but it's true. Since failure then is a sort of part and parcel with creativity. If you don't feel psychologically safe, then you're not going to feel comfortable being creative. And so this is where, when I talk to organizations, the biggest problem you find if people are like, Oh, our culture's not creative enough. The, the area where you find the biggest problem is, well, what's the incentive structure? What's the review cycle? Like, how do, how do you make failure feel okay? And the fundamental, the, the thing I found that is probably the most effective subtle mindset shift is for companies to rethink what their product is. So I talk in the book about Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company, and how they don't view their product as the ice cream. And that's kind of weird to say, but like, it's really important. They don't view their product as the ice cream. They view their product, their sort of secret sauce as their innovation process. And since that's their product, that's the thing they're working on. If any individual product fails, 
Well, as long as they learn why and they can improve their innovation process to account for that in the future, that was a success. And they also do a lot of other things like they don't bonus based on sales, blah, blah, blah. But like that idea fundamentally of shifting from a mindset of, you know, we succeed or fail based on our product to we succeed or fail based on is our innovation process good and getting better. And that mindset shift is a great way to build psychological safety. Yeah, I think you made also a good point about just companies in general, about how the metric driven part of it avoids the risk taking. Because like, if you have to hit sales quota this month, like you're not less likely to take a illogical risk versus a lot logical. And one, one way that executives and managers can avoid that, and really successful engineering teams are good at this, but is basically you have sort of parallel tracks. So like in an engineering team, for example, it's well run. You'll often see things like, you know, we're going to spend 40% of our time on sort of infrastructure, maintenance, existing features, you know, 50% of our time on new features and 10% of our time on sort of like experimental stuff, customer joy, things that are really hard to quantify. And so by quantifying the inputs that you put into experimentation, you make it safe to experiment. And so marketing can act the same way. I've seen marketing teams that are very effective do things like, okay, this is our marketing budget. And 10% of this money is allocated to things that are experimental. So that means like we're not going to hold ourselves accountable to every like nickel and dime result, right? But for the other 90% of budget, we are. And so that gives you that wiggle room to experiment in a safe way. And so I always like to think about if you want to make something feel safe, make it part of a system, make it structural, and then people will feel much more comfortable doing it. You make a good point. I mean, like the writings on the wall in a lot of industries, like you, for example, like investing, right? Like if you have a 10% in risky investments and then you are safer in some, and then you have like, you're diversifying, you're diversifying your, your inputs. Like, you know, these are safe channels like in marketing that are going to produce 10% are, we're going to try this because if, it succeeds, it can move over to like that 50%. And then like you have a, another area where you're doing like whatever you could do top of the funnel or middle of the funnel, like awareness based versus like. And, and that's also so important because in marketing channels rise and fall. So like channels over time sort of have a natural sort of momentum towards inefficiency because more people enter into the market and they get more expensive. And so like, inherently, unless you're a mate, unless you're, or, you know, Procter and Gamble, right. And you're not trying to spend that amount of money, you're going to need to change your marketing channels anyway. And so if you don't have an experimentation budget, what I've seen happen is people might become overly reliant on Facebook ads. And then, you know, especially like 10 years ago, this was happening. And then as Facebook ads started to get dramatically more expensive, a lot of those brands didn't have other marketing channels they could diversify their spend into because they hadn't been experimenting. And so to your point, the experiment of today is the mainstay channel of the future for you. And going actually further on that subject and going on to the people entering the market type talk, I think what separates companies right now is that creativity part of it. I think like if more and more people come into a space like LinkedIn or Facebook ads or stuff like that, like, yeah, it was working maybe because 
there was not a much enough players in the market. Now there's enough players in the market. Now we have to up our copywriting, up our create creativity, zig when everybody zags. Like again, I'm going to quote, quote Rory Sutherland and Alchemy, but he says like the opposite of a good idea is another good idea. Like like one time a good idea becomes really good, you could go to another good idea over here that nobody's doing. Like, yeah, and uh, a lot of times, a lot of times, the things that are good ideas or trends are also the things that are overdone and saturated. And so, by a lot of times, by the time sort of best practices have been synthesized down to something that you might learn about, it probably is too late. You know what I mean? And I think that's that's a big challenge in marketing is you always have to be on that next frontier. You always have to be experimenting because you know if you're just focused on what are sort of what are people teaching me today those tactics probably are too old at this point. And I want to go in because I know you like data stuff and stuff like that. Like what are like the points of data that you bring in to like, look, if this is creatively successful. So it depends on what you're doing, but basically what you find like is in things that are sort of maybe more complicated to synthesize feedback tends to become more qualitative. So like books, for example, like one thing readers you know, if, you, if you've never written a book, you, you might not realize that the book writing process is heavily influenced by feedback readers. So most authors will have friends, fellow authors, you know, usually it's like five to 15 people who will read the book as it's being written and provide feedback. And like that is a huge part of how a book works or doesn't work. And you can tell when you read a book and they haven't done that because like it might have a very strong voice, but it, the voice is just sort of off. And it's not, it's not actually, it's like very clear. It's the voice that the author likes, but it's not sort of a widely interesting voice. And so versus like I talk in the book about Ben and Jerry's, they come up with 200 flavor ideas every year. They have to, they have to put out about 10 new flavors a year. They come up with 200 ideas. And for each idea, they just write a sentence describing it. And then they chop up that list of 200 in a smaller list and they email their email subscribers. And they ask on a survey, two questions. One how unique is this flavor? And two, how likely are you to buy it? Now, what's interesting about that is that you might think, well, why not just ask how likely are you to buy it? And the thing is, is that because and we talked about this a little bit before, successful creative ideas have one foot in the old and one foot in the new, what you want to be do is if you just create something that's very familiar, right? Ben and Jerry's would be all caramel cookie brownie crunch. Like all the flavors would be that. Because if you ask people, what are you most likely to buy? That's what they would answer. Now, if you just ask people, how unique is this? You'd end up with zany flavors that no one wants to buy. And so what they're looking for is ideas that have strong scores on both likeliness to buy and uniqueness, even if it's slightly lower likeliness to buy than other flavors. And so that's a very quantitative example. But like I said, the more complex or textured something is, the more often the feedback becomes qualitative. So movies, for example, they do preview testing and focus grouping and they have quantitative data, but it's a lot. Like they're like, okay, score the main character, score these plots. And then they also do focus grouping where they try and suss out qualitative feedback. And so the moral of the story is you need feedback. <laughs> that makes a good point. And how do you avoid like the bias of like like focus groups and stuff like that? Because I think like that's also something that like if you're picking out people, like it could bias like the response yeah. of how creative it is. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it, you have to think about, it's really important who you're soliciting feedback from, right? So like for my, for my books, like I'm working on a new book and like I'm getting feedback from like a set of feedback readers and it, they are intentionally a bit eclectic career, age, gender, but they all fit the sort of persona that would read the type of book that I want. So even though they all fit the persona within that persona, they're sort of different. And that allows me to know, and I actually see it in the feedback I get, but like they come at it from different lenses and different points of view and different experiences. And that becomes very valuable in sort of fine tuning the book. So yeah, I think you have to be very intentional about the construction of who you gather feedback from. And one question I had on that, because sometimes that can like dilute an original thought. So like, how do you avoid like the dilution of like the thought? So two things. One is I think learning how to incorporate advice and feedback is sort of a skill you learn over time. A couple of tricks to getting better at it. One is to get feedback from a lot of people because what you find is that there tends to be concentrated areas of agreement. And those are usually the things I care the most about. If one person says, oh, I didn't like this joke or I didn't like this thing, I kind of like whatever. Like, you know, like that's probably wrong. But if eight out of my 10 feedback readers like, hey, this paragraph is really confusing, that paragraph is probably really confusing. And so I think, I think looking for those moments of conviction among the people you get feedback from and being willing to sort of throw away in a polite way, throw away the rest of the feedback unless you read and are like, oh, actually, that's a good idea. And one point I really like that you're saying is, and I, and I do this in marketing, and I, I don't know where I learned it from, but like when I like launch a new process, I always launch like the most MVP version of the process to get as much like feedback in it before I launch like the whole process and then it fails because I found out that I find in like organizations what happens is like you're tasked with doing something and then you do this whole brilliant process you get everything and then at the end there's all this feedback anyway and then they'll it fails because you took all this time and you didn't even get any feedback in the process so i like to do like like what people would do with products to the most mvp version of the product cool one question i did want to ask you and i want to make this like actionable for some of the listeners is what are things people can do today to start being more creative I think the biggest thing that anyone can do is to change their friend group. So think about the community you surround yourself with. I mean, that's the thing that has just the highest sort of reward potential in terms of learning lessons, having friendly competition, having people who can support you and boost you and promote what you're doing. And so that's the area where I think people tend to underinvest relative to how important it is. And what is like a common mistake people make with creativity? Oh, I mean, the most common mistake is not even trying because people, I think, hear a lot of mythology around creativity and hear these stories that sound so outlandish. And so like, you know, the stories of like Steve Jobs, is kind of the story of someone who's like semi-divine. And instead of taking that for what it is, which is a PR and marketing story, they internalize and say, well, if I'm not Steve Jobs, I'm not creative enough and I shouldn't even try. And like, that's crazy, right? Because A, the Steve Jobs story is not the story that we've all been told. Like, you know, he, day one, he had Steve Wozniak, like they had, they had employees in the first few months, but he wasn't like doing all this stuff by himself. But two is just that like, even if you don't end up as Steve Jobs, if you got 80% of the way there, you'd have a pretty big, you know, impact 
And so I think for most people, the biggest mistake is not trying. One other question I have is, so I know you talked about going super niche into your, your area of expertise, but what about taking inspiration from other sources? Like what other sources should people get inspiration from? I think that one area that maybe feels like it's not a source, but it is, is other people. So I think sort of like the annoying word for it is like informational interviews or like picking someone's brain, very annoying words. But in reality, those are actually like quite effective in learning. And so to the degree that you can expose yourself to other people who've already been there, done that, and you can learn from them, whether that's in a group setting, a one-on-one setting, whatever that is, that's another form of consumption from a primary source that can be incredibly effective. And a couple more. One I have is like, how do you look for someone that is creative in like a hiring process? I think the key things to look for is openness, curiosity, because fundamentally, if you want to be creative, it means you're constantly incorporating new into what you're doing. And so if you're not curious and you're not open, over time, what happens is as you gather experience, you start to sort of like atrophy and just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And this is why some people, as their careers go on, they actually at some point hit a mark where they sort of like their industry grows past them and they didn't keep up. And so I think that key idea of like curiosity, openness is sort of like, it's probably the main lens in which you can view a creative person. Yeah, I think one great point you make is like the difference between being comfortable and uncomfortable. Because I think comfort is like a a very stagnant way of like not growing and being creative. Well, it's been awesome talking to you. And I want to leave you some time just to tell people where they can get your book and all that great stuff you're doing on the side. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, you can go to allen.xyz. It's A-L-L-E-N.xyz. There's links to the book, social media, newsletter, all that good stuff. Cool. Well, I'm so glad we got you on the show and I'm excited to release this episode. I thought I think there's a bunch of gems here for the audience. Awesome. You're wonderful. Okay. Bye. 